Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in, according, in, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, Grace Life. Thank you, Kyle, and uh, thank you, Cliff. Looking forward to uh, what God has for us today and throughout this series. It's been a joy to, to prepare these messages and to, to study and just anticipate how God's going to use them in both the pastor's life and in the congregation's life. Before I pray and we get started, I just want to make an announcement uh, calling you to pray. Our elders have met last week and we're seeing, I know, there, I know at times on a Sunday there's pockets of empty seats, um, and it's still kind of post-COVID. People are, are figuring out their, where they're at on the health risk and how comfortable they are coming back, and we want to respect all of that. If everyone that regularly attends our church were, were to be here on the same Sunday, it would be almost overwhelming. Um, and so we're praying. God is growing this church, and, and we're having needs that the leadership is not able to meet. And so we're praying and asking God to to help us uh, find more elders who are qualified and want to help us shepherd this body. And even beyond that, we're praying and we're actually moving forward and ask you to join us in praying to, uh, to hire an associate pastor. Number one, to help us launch a, a student ministry. Uh, number two, to help us do family ministry, to help us do counseling. There's just tons of things that, that need to be done here that I can't meet the demands um, and neither can our other elders. So we're asking you, would you please pray? Cliff mentioned this in his message on prayer a few weeks ago. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers and send them. And I'll, I'll share more about that as it develops. You know, this is part of our culture here, guys, is we walk in the light. The leadership is not over here with a bunch of secret information, and then we'll give it to you when we feel like it. We're a family, and we don't keep secrets. So please pray with us and for us. And if God brings to mind somebody that may be a good candidate, whenever we're ready to open up for applications, we'd certainly invite you to have somebody throw their name in the hat. We can talk with them. It's got to be somebody that's trained, they have competency, and they have chemistry, and they understand our culture. Um, so anyway, more about that at another time. I just wanted to put that on your radar, and the elders agree to be a good time to, to announce that. So would you please join us in praying for that? This is an exciting time. Uh, we're in year six, and I feel like in some ways we're still just getting started. And God is really just beginning to mobilize this church to do what he has called us to do. He's called us to exist for outsiders, to take this gospel message to sinners and sufferers who desperately need the hope and the help and the rescue of Jesus. That's why we're here. Everything else we can do better in heaven. Everything else we can do better in heaven. That's the one thing when Jesus comes back or when we die and take our last breath, the mission's over. Right? So uh, so let's pray and, and, and we'll jump in where we left off last week. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your, your word. Thank you for the power of your word, for the authority, for the clarity of it, for the joy that it brings us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who both authored your word and has preserved it through centuries and handed it down to, to in reliable translations. 
And also as our resident teacher, we, we invite you and ask you, Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of our heart today. Help us to see and to adore and to admire and to be astonished at what we see. Challenge us. Grant us faith. Grant us belief. Grant us repentance. May we leave here changed forever by the truths that we're going to celebrate today and discover. And I ask you to, to help me, Lord, share what's necessary and, and withhold what will be harmful or confusing. Lord, I'm only a man and I need your help to, to fulfill the, the position that you give me to lead and shepherd here. Thank you for the men and the women who help serve and for the children getting taught the gospel in the back. Pray, Lord, open their hearts. Thank you for the work of conversion that we're seeing that has happened in the children's ministry here. Week after week, we're hearing testimonies of young people who want to follow Jesus, and they truly understand what that means, Lord. They're, they're sinners, and they need rescue, and they can't provide that for themselves. So may we see more of that and be able to celebrate with them and encourage them and train them up, Lord. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, we, uh, we considered the personal and the historical life-changing power of this letter that we're looking at, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Rome. He wrote it to Christians in Rome. Uh, he had big plans for what this letter would do and how it would shape his mission and how it would impact the people who were his audience. And last week, we, we considered four people who have been changed historically by this letter. I'm not going to rehash all that. You can go back and listen to the messages around three or 400 A.D., St. Augustine, became one of the formidable theologians the first 1,000 years of the church. He was enslaved to lust, chained to sexual immorality, and he encountered in a dramatic and providential way the truths in this book and was instantly converted. Martin Luther, um, in, in around 1500 A.D., he was studying the letter to the Romans, and, and he came to understand that the righteousness of God that Paul talks about it's not something that we have to earn. It's something that God gives us, and that's revealed in the gospel. He was converted and, as you know, was instrumental in the Reformation, which we celebrate. We're, we're, pro, we're Protestants. It was the Protestant Reformation. And then there was John Wesley in the 1700s, came under the power of the gospel at an open street meeting somewhere in, in London. And then, of course, uh, modern-day Elise, Elise Fitzpatrick. She was transformed by the truths in, in this book. And, and guys, that was only a few. Just scattered testimonies. I could go on. Francis Schaeffer came to understand the reality that he belonged to the living God in chapters 6 and 7 and 8 in Romans. And many other people. Um, but I left here a little bit discouraged last week because I didn't get to the most important person that I wanted to talk about who's been chained, changed and unchained, I should say, by the truth and the reality of the Scripture. And that is... The Apostle Paul, you know, those people that we looked at, one was afraid of God, one was angry at God, one was perplexed and confused about God, and the other one was very sad about God, and God transformed them. Not all of them were Christians, by the way. Some, excuse me, not all of them were unbelievers when they encountered the gospel in Romans. Some of them were Christians who had lost their way. Let me just say that again for you as we go through Romans, okay? Some of them were Christians who had lost their way. They had lost clarity. They were confused about who Jesus is, what he requires of them, and what it means to be his follower, and what the benefits and the privileges and the freedoms that are purchased for them through that saving act. They were confused about that. And through this letter, God gave them clarity and freedom and helped them rediscover the power of the gospel, the ongoing power that we need to live the Christian life. The motivation we need, the freedom we need, the 
power we need. And, and I'm praying that people in this congregation would experience that as we go through this letter. Maybe you've got a very narrow lens through which you can understand the gospel message, and God's going to broaden your understanding of that through this series. I hope so. He has mine already. I think the gospel really is like these Russian nesting dolls. Have you, you guys ever had those? You open one and, oh, oh, look, it's another one. And, oh, it's another one and another one and another one. The gospel's like that. That's why it's so interesting and intriguing to me. It would have been confusing years ago, but not, not now, thank God. Paul tells these people, he said, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you, but I know I can't come in person yet, so I'm going to write the gospel to you. Now, be honest. You be honest with me. If somebody told you, hey, I'm going to write the gospel message out, how much literature would you expect? What would they need? Half a sheet of paper, tear off, a little corner? Here's a, a five by seven, write the gospel out. Paul took 16 chapters, over 7,000 words in Greek are in this letter. And he says, this is the gospel. And I, and I consider that, and I'm blown away, because I know that there are parts of the good news about what Jesus Christ came to secure, what he's coming back to fulfill, that I still haven't tapped down into yet. That I need right now to live the Christian life. I need those truths. And I think I had a very shallow and superficial and narrow lens through which I understood the good news. And, and letters like this, which are written to churches who are already converted, but Paul's reapplying the gospel in fresh and new ways. And so they used to confuse me, and then it, then it angered me a little bit. <laughs> and now it, it, it thrills my heart. So that's what Paul is after here. And he takes his time getting to the, what we would consider, unfortunately, the good stuff. You know, I have an affinity with Paul. You guys know I do long introductions. It gets me in trouble sometimes. You're like, is he going to actually get to the Bible? Yes, I have nothing to say apart from the Bible. It just takes me time to get on the on-ramp to the interstate, you know? Um, so Paul writes long introductions. Romans is the longest introduction in the entire Bible to an epistle. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. That's our culture here. Walking the light. We, we skip through these things, don't we? It's like, yeah, 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 Paul, an apostle, called, sent, whatever, set apart, got it. Where's the good stuff? I, as you know, I have a lot of kids, and I have uh, um, two sets of grandparents. One of those grandparents live in Arkansas, 900 miles away, 16 hours away. Um, and, and we don't get to go and visit that often just because of the complexities of taking six kids and a minivan across the world. <laughs> And they don't get to come that often either for lots of reasons. But they send these amazing care packages. Thank God for grandparents and care packages. I don't know. My mom watches every week. Mom, thank you. I don't know how much it costs, Mom, to send those 20-pound care packages. I don't even want to know. They're like priority shit. But we open them up, and there's candy in there. There's, there's cookies. There's clothes. There's books. There's magazines. And there's always cards. There's cards addressed to every kid, especially on a birthday or holiday. We got ours for Valentine's Day last week, and all the chocolate disappeared in about an hour. And some may or may not have gone into your pastor's stomach, okay? I'm ashamed to say it. But my parents send these care packages and they send cards to each kid. And I'm ashamed to tell you this. My kids grab those cards and they rip them open, and my parents have written some really nice and loving words in those cards. To greet my children. And do you think my kids read those words? No. What are they at? Give me the money. Give me the money. Give me the good stuff. Sorry, Mom, Dad, just being honest. 
They grab those cards, rip them open, throw the cards away, and wave the money in the air. Because that's the good stuff, right? But what if the words, what if the greeting, what if the introduction was the good stuff? Now, younger children will do, will do that. Older children, they actually care what grandma and grandpa wrote. And they read it, and they rejoice because they know how much they love them. And the money is just one part of an expression of their love. There's many more. And I think if we're not careful, we will, we will view Paul's introduction here just like the, those cards. We'll just throw it away. And that would be a mistake because Paul is, is dropping hints as to what he's going to do, what he hopes to accomplish in this letter. In fact, just about everything he's going to unpack is right here in the introduction. And so this is a letter that changes everything. And, and Paul wants us to know, even as the author of that letter, that ought to tell us something about the power, the life-changing power. Do you know who Paul is? You know, Paul was at one point a Pharisee. He was a religious zealot, and he was set apart to the teaching of the Torah, the Old Testament law. And when Christianity came along, and this Jesus guy came and started converting people, it made Paul very angry, and he got very violent. And he made it his aim, his task, to seek out and find these Christians in these little gatherings, and drag Christians out, and see to it that they were exterminated and executed. In fact, one of the first Christian martyrs we read about, Stephen in Acts 7, Paul was there, and he was a witness to it. And the young men who stoned Stephen laid their feet at the at the uh, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul's his Hebrew name. God changed it to Paul, his Roman name, because he would be sent to the Gentiles. But he was a terrorist. He was an enemy to the very message that he's now writing and celebrating. He hated Jesus. He hated the gospel, and he hated Christians. And now, what a turn of providence. What a demonstration of the power, love, sovereignty, and compassion of God. Here's Paul, and he's actually writing a letter to build up and encourage Christians. I think so easily, we don't, we don't realize how radical that is. That would be like Adolf Hitler, and I know every time somebody uses this comparison, they get canceled or something. Are you seeing that today? But it's okay to use it. Think of Adolf Hitler, if he reached out to a group of Jews that before he hated and wanted to exterminate and kill and snuff out of existence. And then here comes an Adolf Hitler, and he's suddenly, instead of violent, he's gracious and he's kind. He, he's filled with grace and peace instead of hate and violence. And he wants to love them, and he asks for their forgiveness and says what he did was done in ignorance. And he wants to connect with them and encourage them and help them and enrich them. Wouldn't you say, what in the world happened to Hitler? This is a totally different guy. The old Hitler is gone. And the new Hitler, he's a new creation. Something radically happened to him. I want to know what it is. Your curiosity would be piqued a little bit. And that's the Apostle Paul. Here's the, uh, here's the passage that really shows us. Um, here's the passage that shows us what happened. And it's in Acts chapter 9. And this is Paul on his way, actually, to kill Christians. And instead, he found Jesus. Listen to this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. You know the rest of the story. He was knocked to the ground. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. And I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And lo and behold, that was Paul's mission. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. 
And he went on multiple missionary trips, and he was sent as an apostle to the Gentile nations. What a radical change. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to send a message to the ends of the world, who would you use to carry that message? Paul would be the last candidate you would think, but it was Paul. It was God's first candidate because he wanted to demonstrate a he wanted a living trophy of grace. Hey, I'm about to tell you about a powerful message. How powerful is it? Just look at my past. Look at my history. Look what God did. Look at His grace. How abundant. How overflowing. How rich. How deep. How profound. And it can do the exact same thing for you. In fact, it aims to. It, it intends to. So before they even read. Any further, all they had to do was read Paul. Here's Paul. At, once he, at one time, he carried letters authorizing him to kill Christians. Now he's writing letters to those Christians, building them up and, and unpacking the gospel. He wants them to understand the gospel, and he also wants them to experience its release, its freedom, its power. Totally different mission than he was on before. God chose his biggest enemy to show how deep and how powerful his love were. So uh, when I was young, I used to see this hair club for men all the time. And I used to laugh at it. Little did I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember all those commercials in the 80s and 90s. You remember? The guy at the very end, he would say, by the way, I'm not only the president, I'm a what? I'm a client. Oh, man. I'm, I'm speaking to no, nobody gets this. He would say, I'm not only the president of this hair company that puts hair on bald people, I'm a client. He would show before and after pictures. And that's like Paul. He's not only a carrier of this message. He is a recipient of it. He's a beneficiary. He's been transformed by it. He believes in it. It actually works. <laughs> it's not a scam. It's not a snake oil salesman. That's Paul. He is the, he's the proper advocate for this gospel message. So going beyond that, how would you start your message? If you were the enemy converted, how would you open up your letter to a group of Christians you had never met, but you wanted to help. Well, this is how the Apostle Paul starts, and he says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I'll just tease this out a little bit at the end of, the, of our last message, but I, I, want to, I want to dig a little bit deeper now, okay? Not just get our toes wet, but dive in to the, to the scripture. And but before I get started here, I know that Paul was a special and a unique man. He held a unique and a special office. Um, and I know in some ways we're, we're not Paul. Uh, you know, he received direct revelation from God and he passed that on as apostolic doctrine to churches. He heard God speak. He spoke God's words. He wrote God's words. Um, he could raise people from the dead. So in, in, in some sense, we're not like Paul, okay? I can't do what he did. But in another sense, we're just like Paul. Because some of the same things he lists here, we have experienced and we've been changed in a similar way. So that's how I want to use this outline, okay? So what does he say here? Paul, he was a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So how is the contents, what's, how's the truth in this letter that Paul wrote, how does it change your life and shape your story, shape your history? Well, three ways. One, who you serve. It will change who you serve. Secondly, it will change where you're sent. And third, it will change what you're set apart to, or you might say what your message is, what your worldview is, what you believe. So those are the, those, that's the outline. We're just going to take them one at a time here. Because those deal with his identity, his mission, and his message. And everybody in here has one of those. It's either right or wrong. It either lines up 
with God's uh, revelation or it doesn't. So you're either headed down a wrong path, a dangerous path, a dead-end path, and God wants to correct you today, or he's going to confirm, yeah, keep on going, excel even more. So number one, who you serve. Who you serve. Paul uses a, a really electric term that honestly today, most translations that translate the Bible say bondservant. And, and that's because it, it's a softer it's a softer version of this word, what it really means in Greek. In the, in the modern vernacular, it would be slave. And I know right off the bat, you're like, ugh, especially in our society today. Who wants to be called a slave, right? But God knows history. And he knew we would be reading this today. He still chose that word, doulos. And it's all over the Bible. Paul, before Paul even gets started, he can't wait for you to know that his identity is, I belong to somebody else. I am owned by another. Somebody is my master. That's my identity. It's not necessarily Paul's going to tell you who he is. He's going to tell you that. But he's wanting you to know whose he is. That's his identity. I belong to somebody else who has purchased me, who has delivered me, and brought me out of the slave market of sin and condemnation and death and hate and shame. I'm his. And Paul will tell you later in this letter, he's mine. I'm his. And I know that word again, slave, is, is kind of has an edge to it. But that's okay. Let it have that edge. Because part of being a slave is you belong to another. They call the shots. You know, there's no such thing as a doulos without a kurios. The word kurios is the Greek word for Lord. That wouldn't make any sense to somebody back then if you were to say, I'm a slave. The next question would be, whose slave are you? Who's your Lord? Who's your master? And I know there's lots of Christians that run around and call themselves Christians. And I serve Jesus, but you don't see any indication that he's truly their master and that he's Lord, right? Paul's saying, he's my Lord. He calls all the shots, and I willingly belong to him. He's a good master. It's almost a paradox, because what, what Paul's going to spend the rest of this letter sharing with you is how, how God freed him. <laughs> Those don't really go together. I'm a slave, but without bonds. God, God you know, shattered and destroyed my handcuffs. And now I'm a slave, but I'm free. That's the tension of the Christian life. That's the paradox. I'm a free slave. I belong to another, and he's a good master. In fact, I was reading in Exodus 21, there's a really strange passage in the Old Testament. Every seven years, by Jewish law, they had something called the year of Jubilee. And all slaves and captives would be set free. Hallelujah. Right? Um, but there's a provision that's made. Some people that were slaves belonged to really good masters who weren't cruel, provided for them. They were very happy in their situation. And to send them out would be very dangerous and detrimental to them. So there was a provision God made in Exodus 21. He said, look, every seventh year, Jubilee, free, released, be gone. However, if there is a slave, a doulos, who loves his master and wants to remain with that master, he may do so. Take him to the doorpost of the house and, and pierce his ear through with an awl, and he shall belong to that master forever. And I think that's the word picture here. Paul says, I'm a slave. And they go, ooh. And he says, but wait, my master is amazing. In fact, I love him. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm a willing slave. He has freed me. He has fulfilled me. And when I fail him, he forgives me. <laughs> I mean, who else is going to, what other master can you meet like that? Number one, when you meet them, they fulfill you. And number two, when you fail them, and you will, they forgive you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So that's what he's saying here. He, had, he has been released from his captivity to Satan. 
and to sin. And to serving a, a, a false religion, what he was a, a zealot for, but misunderstood. Paul was unshackled from his reputation being his identity, how zealous he was, how, how true to his pharisaical calling he was. In fact, listen to this. I think I may put a slide up for this. This is a... Yeah, this is, this is Paul's testimony when he's writing to the Philippians. Check this out. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But wherever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul became a slave to another, but God had to wreck him first. Can anybody testify? Has God had to wreck you of your own self-righteousness? Paul said, I have confidence. You think you have confidence in the flesh? Man, I was blameless. To the, according to the letter of the law, the externals, blameless. No infractions, no violations. I was clean, I was pure, I was chaste. I was the man, I was the dude, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And then he met Jesus and he saw that's all rubbish. That was a terrible identity. See, his identity was that he was a servant and he was more zealous than anybody else and he served the law and he was the best at it. And God had to wreck that identity and say, Paul, that's all, it's all rubbish. In fact, the, the, the word that's used so often in the Bible to describe that is, I couldn't even say it out loud, the translation in our modern vernacular. It's dumb. It's garbage. It's poop, okay? <laughs> it's what Paul's saying. It means absolutely nothing to me now. What means everything to me is that I have a righteousness that's been given to me, and it came through faith. That's what Paul's going to talk about the rest of his letter. A righteousness that came through faith, not work, not striving, not my zeal, not my labor, not my earnestness. It was a gift of God. And he wastes no time in telling us that. He was bought. He was owned. And listen, if we're not careful, we will, we will view this, this doulos, this slave. I'm a slave of Christ. We'll view that as, as false humility. Paul, it's like some people sign the name lowercase. You know? That, no, no, no worries if you do. That's, that's cool. Whatever you want to do to humble yourself, I'm in favor of it. But some Paul will be like, Sign Paul, slave of Christ, lower place, lowercase p, because I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. But that's not what he's saying, though. He's not. Now, now hear me out. This may sound heretical. Paul's saying, I'm actually something now. I'm something because of who I belong to. That's my identity. That other garbage, that didn't get me anywhere in life. It made me angry and hateful and proud. I had, I had proud days where I was crushing it, and then I had days where I was in despair. Like he says in Romans 7. When he realized the law said, thou shalt not covet. And that's what he'd been doing his entire life. Paul's saying, now I'm a somebody because of the one that I belong to. Because of what he did for me. Now I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a son of God. Right? I'm adopted. I'm justified. I'm cleansed. 
I'm an heir. I'm a joint heir. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I belong to him. My future is so bright. I got to wear shades. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. So don't misunderstand him and say, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a slave. I'm just at the bottom of the, of the ladder. He's saying, no, my virtue, by virtue of who Christ is and what he has done for me, I'm a somebody now. I was a nobody that somebody died for. It's like the whole bodyguard illustration. What's a bodyguard? You know what a bodyguard is? It's a nobody that, that will die for a somebody. They'll take the bullet like that guy did for Ronald Reagan in 1981. But Jesus was a somebody who died for nobodies. <laughs> and Paul says, because of that, I'm a somebody. I hope that makes sense to you. That's what he's saying here. He actually has value. And listen, he's not alone. I, just, I was just early this morning. I was like, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. <laughs> Whenever you read Peter's epistles, the second, second, second Peter, he says, Peter, a doulos, a slave. Whenever you read James, slave, I'm a slave. Whenever you read Jude, do you know that Jude was actually the humanly speaking brother of Jesus? Did you know that? The book of Jude, right before Revelation, Jesus' blood brother wrote that. And do you know what he calls himself? Not the brother of Jesus. He says, he says, Jude, brother of James, slave of Christ. Don't you like that? Because I would be like, hey, I'm Jesus' brother. <laughs> Peace. That's, that's something. That's nothing. In the flesh, that's nothing. Being a slave to Christ is so much more elevated. <laughs> and he knew that. That's why we read it. And even the apostle John said that. He was the one that, that reclined on the chest of Christ. And he says, I'm a slave of that. Check this out. Check this out. In Revelation chapter 1, he identifies himself as a slave to Jesus, and then he says this. Four verses later, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's a paradox. It's like I'm a slave of Jesus, but he's freed me, and I belong to him, and I'm in his kingdom. Hallelujah. That's the paradox of Christianity, and I love it. It's all over the place. I don't think we talk about it enough. It's, it's, some people might think, yeah, Paul was a, this was like Stockholm Syndrome, right? He's been so brainwashed by his captor that now he has this sympathy for him, but it's, it's, it's not that at all. He loves his master. God has opened his eyes to see where he was headed and how God radically intervened on that road to Damascus and changed everything. Paul was spiritually blinded. I had it he saw Christ and his, his eyes were open. Think of how Paul could have introduced himself because he's quite a man. Paul has like gifts that are off the charts. He could have said, Paul, eminent theologian, Jew, also Roman, born free. He could have said, uh, philosopher, poet, master logician, you know, the master of logic. I mean, if he, if he was the typical American, don't be offended by this. I just want to help us all, okay? Because we all have an identity. We're all, we all serve somebody. I said it last week. Bob Dylan said best. You got, you're going to have to serve somebody. Everyone in this room serves somebody. And maybe if you dig deeper, you're actually enslaved to that something that you serve. So, if Paul were a typical American, he may say something like, uh, Paul heterosexual, like that's, that's my identity, I'm straight, or uh, homosexual, and I'm not at all saying that, that Paul, Paul, 
Paul was, and, and that's a sin that we're going to talk about later in the Bible. But think how the typical American uh, thinks of their identity. Sexual preference, that's my identity, right? Or if you want to call it, their, they call sexual orientation. Or, or maybe it's, hey, Paul, I'm married to so-and-so. Husband to so-and-so. Or I have five kids, that's my identity. Or I'm single, that's my identity. Or think of all the things that we so easily get our identity from that ends up crushing us. It does. We're slave to beauty. Or we're slave to wealth. Or we're slave to power. Or we're slave to lust. Or what we buy. Or what we wear. Or who we marry. Or how many digits are after our salary. You know, or where we went to school. When you're filling out a resume, it's really easy to figure out those identity things that you trust in. It's the thing you can't wait to fill out. And then, and then the shame comes later, the things you don't want to fill out. Have you ever been a felon? Have you ever been arrested? It's like, oh man, again? We all have our identities, and Paul said this is the best identity. We're all slaves to somebody. He says that later in chapter 6. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? Well, I can say a lot more about that, but I'm going to stop there. Point two. Um, not only who you serve, but where you're sent. And Paul says, I am called to be an apostle. And I think that's an important adjective. It's like, my name is Tommy Clayton, but the word in Greek is Claytos. Okay, so it's easy to remember for me. That's what it means to be called. He's Claytos, uh, apostle. And the word apostle, what does it mean? It means sent. I've been sent. He's a called apostle. Paul, before, was sent to kill Christians. Now he's sent to make Christians and to build them up. Total shift for his life. Total shift. And as we go throughout this letter and, and even beginning today, I want you to think in terms of who have you been sent to? I guarantee you if we dig deep enough, we can discover people that desperately need the good news that God's entrusted to us, that he sent us to. And maybe he sent nobody else. Maybe you're the only Christian that those people will ever know. You're the only one that can carry that message to them. Paul knows that about himself in certain circles. I mean, he was uniquely equipped. He was born and raised in Tarsus. That would have been like a, a Greek center, just like Alexandria and just like Athens. That was where a lot of the Greek poets spent their time. He, he was raised under the teaching at the feet of a man named Gamaliel, who was an amazing expositor of the Torah. So Paul knew the law, okay? Paul knew Greek philosophy. He could quote Greek poets. He could refute Greek mythology. He could do all of that. He was uniquely gifted to be sent to Gentiles. He spoke their language, literally and metaphorically. He understood the cultural idols of his day. He knew the filter that they would understand the good news. He was sent to them. He got them. I would say, look, who are you sent to? Are, are children able to understand you better than they do others? Some people have that gift. You know what? I, I'm ashamed to say this to you. I have six children, and I, and I often feel like when I'm teaching them the Bible at home or even in a classroom somewhere, I often feel like I'm really struggling to connect with them. I have been around people, and I'm blown away at the gift and envious and jealous even at the gift that God gave them to be able to communicate with children. And you know where I want them to be? Right back there. That's where I want them to be. <laughs> That's where they belong. If you are able to communicate deep, profound truths to children in language they understand and to wrap their little tender minds around, will you please consider how God might send you to these children 
or to your children or to children in the neighborhood that need to hear the good news. That's a gift, man. I wish I had it. I wish I had it. I pray, God, help me. I don't know. I don't. How do I take this? How do I take the atonement and understand? I did something really dumb once when I was in seminary. One of my kids did something naughty. And yeah, I'm going to say it. I, I spanked my children, okay? Uh, and so you can talk to me about what that doesn't mean later if that bothers you. But we were in seminary. One of my kids, uh, you know, they broke the family code, okay? And it was time. It, it was time for discipline. And, and, and I said, hey, look, you know what? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to show you mercy. And there was friends like, What's going on here? And I'm like, what you did was wrong and it was simple. And you deserve to be punished. You deserve discipline. But daddy's going to show you mercy and grace instead. But somebody still has to take your punishment. And I said, I'm going to take your punishment for you. And they were like, what in the world? And I said, honey, I want you to give me the punishment that they deserve. Right in front of them. I want them to see this. Now you can just use your imagination. That didn't fly. Here's the Hey, look, 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 man, I'm just desperate trying to show my kids what the gospel looks like. So my wife, man, somebody's going to get to see this, I'm going to get arrested, probably. So my wife is like uh, administering discipline to me, and my kid is looking at me like, what is my daddy's lost his ever-loving mind? So if you're able to, to communicate substitutionary atonement in a better way, will you come see me and help me, and maybe consider a prayer about helping teach our children back there, okay, that kind of I saw a survey the other day. In the UK, which is anything in Europe is going to be, Christianity is not a worldview that people are sympathetic towards, if you, get, if you catch my drift. They're, they're pretty hostile to it. Um, and yet, this shocked me. There's a survey that came out that said 67% of non-Christians in the UK, 67, that's two-thirds, reported knowing of a Christian that they know and that they trust who shows kindness and sacrifice. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you think ought to be sharing the gospel with those people in that survey? Because here's what I probably know to be true. Out of those 67% of people that know a Christian, how many of those Christians view themselves as sent to that person? How many non-believers do you know that may not know the gospel message, may have never heard it in their life, and you're their friend. They see you. They see the change that it has made in your life. They see the difference that faith in Jesus makes. And you are uniquely sent. I believe you're sent to them. You're equipped. You're called. You are sent in a way that maybe nobody else can. Somebody, one of our leaders will share with me that there's an older person in his family who has cancer and they're dying. And this person has rejected the gospel multiple times. And there's only one person in his family that that old person will hear. And it's a very, it's, a, it's an involve, it's a sacrifice for them to tell this person the gospel. They have to reorder all their life. They got little kids, they're a busy mom, and yet this person is setting aside, sacrificing, because she believes God has sent her to communicate the gospel to that person. He's one of the only people that he'll listen to. Is there somebody like that in your life? Maybe God's going to use this to remind you, you carry something very precious. We carry this treasure in earthen vessels. We're cracked clay pots, but we got treasure that people need to hear. We're obligated. Paul says, I'm under obligation to share that. I, I know we tend to think of gifts and callings in and, and real narrow categories. This, this may offend you too, but I, I want to say it because maybe it will help you. I'm just going to use an illustration. Let's just say you're a musician, okay? And then God converts you. Um, 
and, and you say, now I'm a Christian who's a musician, and therefore God wants me to only write songs about Jesus and about the Bible and about church. And that's, that's my mission. I'm only going to, I can't write music about anything else. And that's the way you view your mission in life. It's some people, that, very, that is how God calls them, and that they're a musician. However, there's another way you can do that too. Maybe you're going to be a musician that writes wholesome things that are profound and deep, not necessarily explicitly about Jesus or Christianity, but maybe are informed by it. And maybe you will be an excellent musician who doesn't cut corners, who is kind to other people, who's not a slave to money or fame or attention. And God's going to use that, your testimony, for people to see a change live and then be curious about it. And then you can have a dialogue. Does that make sense? I think we lock ourselves in sometimes to think of our mission in really narrow categories that only a few people have been designated. Does that make sense? I hope it, I hope it does. Paul was uniquely qualified to reach the audience that, that God sent him to. So, um, and then he was, he was set apart. Set apart is the same. It's, it's so similar to the word for Pharisee that they sound alike when you say them in Greek. And I'm not, I'm not going to try to do that. Okay? I'd embarrass myself. But a Pharisee was set apart to God's law. And they viewed themselves as holy, separate. They didn't touch Gentiles because they were unclean. They didn't go places where Gentiles had been. They would be unclean. They had all these ceremonies of washing and cleansing, right? And Paul uses a similar word, but he says, I'm set apart. But I'm not set apart uh, as a zealot for the law anymore. Even though he loved the law of God, we should. He said, I'm set apart to good news. I'm set apart for the gospel. That is what God, God has. He's, he's, he sent me to, to the Gentiles. I'm an apostle. I'm called. I'm, I'm, but he has uniquely set me apart to the good news. In other words, if you wake Paul up at 3 a.m. and say, what are you doing? He would say, I'm trying to get the gospel to all the world. I'm set apart. That's my message. My mission is I'm sent. My message is the good news from God. That's what this passage says. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He is called to be an apostle. And he is set apart to the gospel of God. I'm set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Do you see that in the passage? The gospel means good news. It's from God, and it was promised beforehand. It's nothing new. It comes straight out of the Old Testament scriptures. But here, here, here is what uh, is what grips me when I read this. And I'll, I say I'm closing with this. This is like a... Long closing here, okay? Or maybe not so long. This is like the bonus. Not the outline. This is the extra stuff. How do you view good news? The good when I, when I ask you, and I'm going back to that, would you write a paragraph or would you do Russian nesting dolls or write 16 chapters? Paul says this good news was a promise from God. It's a promise. It's not a command. It's not good advice. Somebody said it this way. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's not something that you have to do to earn God's salvation. It's something God has already done on your behalf that you receive. Believe. It's not this achieved thing. It's this received thing. So the gospel is good news. It's a declaration. It's an announcement. And it, and it contains in it a promise. So don't say this out loud, okay? I just want to ask you. Use your gospel test. And for the next two years, I'm going to keep giving this test to you, Okay? If the gospel is a promise God made, I want to ask you this question. What is it exactly that God promised? That's what I want you to think about, okay? Because Paul's going to spend 16 chapters answering that question. 
and we're just scratching the surface today. What is it he promised? Because here's what I here's what I used to think. And this is not wrong. Don't you dare say that I left here. Pastor Tommy said that, that the gospel is not about forgiveness. It is about forgiveness. God promised that we could be forgiven for our sins. Hallelujah. What how hopeless would we be without that guarantee? I mean, not guarantee, just that possibility that we could be forgiven, right? That's enough. That would be if that was the only thing the gospel secured is forgiveness through Jesus, that'd be enough to celebrate for all eternity. And we will. We will. But that's not the only thing that the gospel promises. It's not just forgiveness. Maybe this will blow your mind the way it's been blowing my mind. You know what else the gospel promises? Freedom. Freedom. In other words, the gospel is for sinners. And it's also for sufferers. For sufferers. Who are suffering in a way that may not be simple. There's a lady in our church. I'm not going to embarrass her or call her name out. And I may get emotional. About a year ago, she got news that her son was tragically killed in an accident. And the very next week, she drove by our church and saw the sign of came. And she desperately needed to hear some good news. She needed good news. She was swimming in bad news. She woke up to it, she went to bed to it. Now, I want to ask you a question. If the gospel really is good news, and, and, and there's now power in the gospel. It's good news for you and me right now, whatever we're facing. How would you apply the promises of God to somebody like that? Would you say, well, God's forgive me for your sin. Hey, praise God, and that ought to be a perspective-setting truth, right? That lightens all the other sufferings we do. But I believe God has even more to say to somebody like that. What would somebody that that happened to maybe suffering from? Anger? Turns out a drunk driver hit her son. You better believe I'd be, you better believe I'd be angry. And not all anger is sinful, by the way. Would, would you be tempted to think, okay, that's my identity then from now on. I'm the bereaved mother. That's who I am. I'm a victim. I'm a survivor of the tragedy of losing my son. Would the good news have anything to offer somebody like that? Because, friends, I'm telling you right now, for years, I would not have been able to share any good news with her. Even after I went to seminary, I, I had one very narrow lens through which I viewed the gospel. And it was, give me somebody that is guilty of a sin, and I can preach the gospel to them blue in the face. But anybody else, get a professional or some specialized help, because I'm clueless. That is not a good place to be as a Christian, or as a Christian leader, or as a pastor. Paul wants the Christians that he's writing to to understand this gospel, but he also wants them to experience all that God has for them in this message. All the power, all the motivation, all the joy, identity shifting, behavior changing, motivation, uh, enlightening, empowering, all that stuff. So I'm going to close with a final... Yeah, at least Fitzpatrick said something that stood out to me. She said, the gospel is good news when you need to be forgiven of a sin. Is it good news when you didn't get invited to the party too? See, I know, I know, I know Christians that would say, God, you just need to get over it. You, need to, you didn't get invited to the party, so I'll bless your widow heart. So you feel sad, you need to get over it. And I, my question would be, okay, help me. Help me get over it. What's going to help me get over it? I feel left out. I feel abandoned. I feel like nobody cares about me. Do you have any good news for me? And God says, yes, I do. 16 chapters packed full of it to help you get over that. So I don't think any of those things 
or shallow or superficial. I think God has good news for whatever you're going through. And I think this, this book is going to help us to land on it. So here's my closing illustration. God doesn't only want to forgive you, he wants to change you. Um, how many people have heard of Dr. Larry Nassar? Okay, you'll remember when I tell you who he is. Um, he's a very wicked and evil man. He was the coach for the USA Gymnastics team. Oh, yeah, now you know who he is, don't you? That's right. About three years ago, it came out that this man, I know we have little, little ears in here, that this man had, had abused multiple children, multiple, most of them teenagers, sexually abused them for years. Some of them in the very same room that their parents were in, and the parents had no clue. And I'm not going to tell you, share any details. You can just use your imagination. The trauma that that inflicted on those families. Over 160. And there was one girl, Rachel Denhollander, who was the first to file a complaint. And she was ignored. It was dismissed. It was made light of. It was suppressed. It was, she was silenced. And then other reports came out. And other reports. And finally, they couldn't ignore it anymore. The University of Michigan, I think that's the college where he was employed in the USA. And he, and he went to court. And he was charged 175 years. I mean, it was brutal sentence. 175 years. He's going away. He ain't never getting out of there. And part of the sentencing was 160 of the survivors could face him in court and talk to him about what he did to them. And you know who the last person was to stand and face her accuser? Rachel Denholander, who happened to be a very committed and educated Christian. And she shared the gospel. Her, her, her accuser, her perpetrator, her, her abuser was sitting in front of her in orange. Can we, do I have that up there? I think I do somewhere. Yeah, I skipped a lot. Hey, that's okay. Whoa. Uh, maybe I don't. I don't. I don't know. That's okay. So just ignore that. That's from a previous sermon. <laughs> so she's standing accusing her abuser. And she, here, I want to share with you the good news that she shared with a condemned criminal. Check this out. And, and then we'll, we'll close. I, don't, I forgot to start my clock again. I'm sorry. I don't know what time it is. She said, Larry Nassar, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible, you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. As if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, Larry, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Now, did you hear what she said? That's, she said a bunch more, by the way. I just couldn't say it all. She spoke the gospel to that man in a category that he could understand. He's guilty. He's condemned. He's going away for a long time. He's in handcuffs. He's in an orange jumpsuit. What he needs is forgiveness. And she understands that. And that's the category. She is speaking the gospel fluently to him. And there, thank you. In a category that he can understand. Right? That's good news for a condemned criminal who's guilty. Now, I've got a question for you. Now, don't answer this. Would anybody have any good news to share with her? Because i got a feeling she's going to need it when, she, when this is over. Do you think? Do you think she's going to need good news? Do you think she's going to suffer? Do you think she's going to suffer from PTSD, maybe? Remembering what happened to her? Do you think she's going to be bitter? 
toward male authority figures? Do you think she's going to suffer in her marriage with romance and intimacy? And most importantly, do you think that for the rest of her life, her identity is going to be Rachel Denhollander, victim? Rachel Denhollander, abuse survivor. That's, that's going to be her identity. So my question is, what did God promise beforehand? How, and how can that gospel help her? Can it? Do we have any category? Can somebody please share some good news with, with Rachel Denhollander? That question used to haunt me at night. Because for a while I couldn't. I would say, get over it. How cruel is that, by the way? Just get over it. Just grow up. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps for crying out loud. You're alive. You survived. Isn't that enough? I would have said those things. In fact, I'm sure a version of that has been perpetrated by me in counseling offices when I was a college pastor. I probably hurt a lot of people. I still apologize to some of the college students that I shepherded. So what, what might we... I mean, does the gospel have anything to say about shame? <laughs> For example. I don't believe it does. God took our shame, didn't he? Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He was naked, bloody, held up in the air for everyone to see, in between two guilty thieves. He was forsaken by God. He was abandoned by God. He cried out, help, and God didn't answer him. The shame. He bore our shame, the Bible says. Yes, the gospel has plenty to say to her. You do not have to go with the rest of your life believing that you're just a survivor or that you're a victim. You are more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you. <laughs> How's that for good news for somebody like that? Hey, look, maybe somebody in here needs that good news. All you've ever heard is that the gospel says God will forgive you. It does. Praise God for that. You can be forgiven for whatever. I don't care how vile or disgusting it is. The gospel says nobody's too sinful for God to forgive. And it says more than that, too. It says you have a new identity. You belong to Jesus now. You're, not, you're more than a conqueror. You're not a victim. You're not just a survivor. You've been seated together with Christ. He can change your story. Your story, when it coincides with God's, can be changed forever. And, and look, he's the physician who will actually heal you, not like that coach. <laughs> he will actually care for you and not exploit you or abuse you or hurt you. You can trust him. That's your Savior right there. That's the, that's, that's the figure of authority you needed all your life. The other one failed you and let you down. And now you're going to mistrust them. But that's okay because there's hope. You've got Jesus. That's why I love Paul's introduction. He says, I'm a slave to Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart to the good news from God concerning Jesus. It's not about an idea or a system or a philosophy or a political agenda. It's about a person. Jesus came and secured all of those things for us. And guys, I can't, we're just getting started. Now look, I know we only covered two verses today, but don't be intimidated by that. We're going to get through this book. I'm going to go faster. I just didn't want to skip the good stuff here. Paul's just dropping hints. Good stuff is coming, guys. Okay, this will help all of us because I think this is Russian nesting dolls. All of us need this good news and, and, and all of its glory to be applied to our hearts. All of us have wounds. Some of us have secrets. And we need the help that only God can give. And He does give it. And you know the whole point of all of this, that's the reason we call this Engage, is so that we can take this good news that God is sharing with us and we can take it to people that desperately need it. Who are you sent to this morning? 
You know, we even have something that's going to help you today. It's Valentine's Day. Everyone's got love on their mind. And maybe there is a neighbor that you're just getting to know. You barely know them. But we have something Megan's going to come up in a minute and share. We have some chocolate roses with a grace-like card and note. And you may think that's cheesy, but look, it's a way for you to at least connect with somebody. So, hey, I care about y'all just thinking about you today. Here, here's a chocolate rose uh, from our church. Enjoy it, you know. Hopefully you're not a chocolate addict and I'm helping you, you know, enabling you or something. Um, but let's, let's just pause and pray. And uh, we have a prayer team in the back that's always there. Uh, Kyle's going to come and he's going to sing a song while we just reflect on what we've heard. And maybe this good news, maybe you needed to hear some of this today. Maybe you carry secrets. Maybe you care shame. Maybe you got condemnation. Or maybe you're just carrying something really heavy from your past. And I'm telling you, God says this good news is for you. It's for you right now. It's for you right here. It's the ongoing power of God for salvation, for rescue, for deliverance, identity shifting, behavioral changing. It's for us from God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these promises that we have, for this good news, for how deep and profound and often mysterious that it is. Make it so clear to us, Lord, and powerful that we leave here changed. As Ray Orland prayed, Lord, for his church, may we float out of here because we've been so elevated by the beauty and the power and the wonder and the glory of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the return and the sending of the Spirit. All of those things were purchased for us by the gospel. Lord. May we live in the power of that today and all week long. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.